1: Hey Jundo, have you ever considered being a hermit? Well, I actually have had a few periods like that, but it was kind of involuntary. Uh there seem to be times in life when uh you know, you're little at a loss for a friend and between relationships and and I actually found it very appealing to be on my own. I'm kind of a, a loner myself. And I have thought, though, of getting out of the city and going out in the mountains and living in a hut, it's very appealing in many ways. And uh, certainly the rent's cheap. Well, the rent's cheap, but you don't get utilities or anything. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's true. Now, now, back when a lot of these old Zen hermits did it, there were no utilities to get. All you needed was a stream. You needed a, a little garden. Uh, maybe uh, living off uh, the natural foliage all around. They were mostly vegetarians, so you'd be surprised uh, what you could do with leaves and nuts uh, out there.
0: Yeah, I've been reading poetry by Ryokan lately. Let me just recite a short poem. It's quiet, my little three-mat hut. The whole day long, not a soul to be seen. I sit and meditate by my lonely window, the
1: only sound, the endlessly falling leaves. Now, he must have known someone because of these poems survived and became public. So he wasn't completely isolated. And uh, I I assume that uh, when you look at the lives of many hermits, that they actually had a kind of support group. There are people who come around, people would wander up the mountains, students, and and they had a lot more social interaction than you would think. Now, there are real loners out there, people who want to stay all by themselves. But there's always, uh, it seems, people around who to wander in. Friends, uh, the old Chinese hermits always valued friendship, too, which you would think would be strange for a hermit. But uh, you maybe cherish the moments, those rare contacts with friends more when it's few and far between.
0: When you read about Ryokan and his poetry, um, you can see that he goes out begging, he goes into towns, Um, he meets people. He was a very well-known calligrapher, and he creates calligraphy for people. He writes poems. He does have people that visit all the time. And that reminds me of um, one of my favorite American authors, Henry David Thoreau, who wrote a book called Walden, where he lived by a pond for uh, a little more than two years. But he was a mile from Concord. He went back to have his
1: mother wash his clothes. So you're saying Ryokan for a hermit was kind of a social butterfly.
0: Yeah, I think it's fair to say that, that these kind of hermits cherished the solitude that they could get for certain periods of time, but it wasn't like they were there for, you know, six months without seeing anyone, because they did need food, they did need someone to cut their hair maybe every once in a while, or someone to uh, help sew their clothes. They needed they needed interaction. They weren't total loners.
1: Now, th- this tradition continues. You know, the, the wonderful documentary that I recommend to everyone of uh, hermit's in China now. And also Red Pine has a wonderful book about the same hermits. The book is also great called Amongst White Clouds. It's about Buddhist hermits living on mountain. And most of them actually hang out with the other hermits. <laughs> and, uh, you know, not maybe not every day, but uh, maybe some of them, you know, you have a good, uh, my fellow hermit friends, and some of them actually can't, you know, can't get along with the hermit next door. You would think if you were a hermit, the point was, you would be a hermit, you wouldn't have to deal with other people. But it seems even hermits, you know, sometimes have trouble dealing with the other hermit who's, who's down the block. But uh, the, the documentary shows that they had tremendous social network, too, of people who support them, and it, it's not as lonely in existence as you would think. Now, there, there may be true loners out there, but in the inner city, there are many loners who might be in an apartment In the middle of a crowded block and have almost no contact with people. And if they're afraid of having contact, I don't think that's being a good kind of hermit.
0: No. And I think the way to look at the hermits who were living up in the mountains is that they were taking retreats. And there may have been a retreat for most of a day or most of a week, but they weren't withdrawing from society entirely. They were just going to a place where they could meditate in peace for However long they wanted to.
1: Now, you know, I I say this many times. We we look at this from the 21st century and we think, boy, that must have been a hard life. You know, no cell service and no Netflix up there on the mountain. And and where do you plug in your electric razor to? And and but you have to remember, back in these days, the twelfth and let's say thirteenth century, to be a hermit, it wasn't that difficult in the sense that there was no cell service. And there was no Netflix. I mean, some of the older folks here might actually remember when there was no Netflix and self-service. But, yeah. I mean, back then, yeah. there was no electricity. So you weren't giving up as much. And when you went into the city, those were the places of toil and disease and uh, violence and overcrowded. Uh, you Not being able to find work or housing. uh it, The the urban centers, unless you're very, very wealthy, and even then was not uh, how we live today. So to be a hermit then was not the same choice as to be a hermit today.
0: Yes, that's a good point. Um, It was merely shifting yourself to a slightly different environment. You may have had a small hut, but your abode in a city might not have had better insulation or you know, windows and doors than what your hut did. And in fact, in some cases, if you were in the mountains and you had time to collect enough leaves and branches, you could probably make a warmer hut than what you would have in the city.
1: I would imagine. Now, I wouldn't want to try it, but I imagine... Why uh, not? Why not? As an experiment. Well, okay, I have gone off by myself into the cabin in the woods for weeks at a time. Uh Uh-huh. And I intentionally left the books behind And turned off the uh, internet and told my family not to contact me unless it was an urgent emergency. Even when you're a hermit, in case of emergency, you have to be reachable, you know. Yeah. I I don't want to be one of those hermits who comes back and finds the world has ended and nobody told me. You know, (laughs) there there are a couple of movies about that. But uh, I went out there and I found it very difficult mentally at first to not want to be stimulated and entertain myself with all the usual distractions we have these days i'm sure you know what Mm. we mean for example podcasts you know how can you live without podcasts especially this one yeah how can you live without recording
0: podcasts right right yeah but how long did it take to get over that because it's like at a retreat isn't it maybe the first couple of days you um you recite that six syllable mantra what am i doing here what am i doing here but after a while you settle
1: into the groove don't you I found myself within hours having my imagination take over and having wonderful, deep conversations with myself. Surprisingly, some of the best conversations I ever had because I always agreed with myself, you know, (laughs) I always had and I was always witty. I found myself incredibly witty, you know, which most people don't. So <laughs> Yeah.
0: Did did you bring a notebook and a pen to write down your witticisms?
1: I did, and uh because it it was a, a uh, unplugged experience, I did write things down and I after that I don't think there was anything in the notebook particularly uh worthwhile. I have to go back and look at it, uh if there were any profound insights. But I did see sit Zazen. I did have some hallucinations. Sounds seem very big. You do get a little in the quiet, uh a little uh, how to say Uh, paranoia can uh, creep in there. I think you picked the wrong mushrooms. No, no, no. I I did nothing like that. But sounds (laughs) outside, you know, you hear a breaking branch, and you're sure it's, you know, the bear is outside like that, that kind of thing. But it was wonderful.
0: I'm going to do it again. Okay. So one thing that suggested this topic to me, partly was reading the poetry of Ryokan, but also uh, you shared a link to a documentary that was made by the NHK, the Japanese TV, called Seek Nothing, Just Sit. And it was a documentary filmed at the Temple of Antaiji, which is a temple that is part of our lineage, isn't it?
1: Yes, it is. It was uh, not in that location. It used to be in the city which is interesting. They've moved out into the middle of nowhere. You have to take a train and then a bus and you get off the bus and then you have to walk up a mountain for an hour and a half to get where they are. And they spend much of the winter literally snowed in. Uh, they can get out in an emergency, but I've heard it's it's uh, quite uh, daring. And a couple of people have lost their lives Trying to get really? in and out of antai Yeah, it's it's really uh, very perilous uh, at certain times of the year. Now, it's not, they're not hermits because it's a group of people. There's usually anywhere from six to 12 people there. The famous uh, German abbot, uh, Muho, was abbot there until uh, this past year. And they get a lot of foreigners there. But it was originally founded by homeless Kodo Sawaki and Uchiyama Roshi in Kyoto, in the city. So it wasn't quite the hermit's existence
0: but they're living in a place where they have to provide for themselves yes. they have to grow food and they have to maintain the temple and it's it's as if it's a a, a hermit group you could say yeah. i think there was uh, if i remember the seven or eight people total with the um abbot echo and all but one of them were foreigners. I think there was one Japanese and all the others were foreigners. My first impression was it was kind of a rehab center for lost souls because there were these really young people who were going there seeking the meaning of life. And it doesn't seem to me that you go to a Zen temple to basically um, do Zazen and work all day. They only do four hours of Zazen a day, which doesn't seem like a lot. But You don't go there when you're 22 or 23 seeking the meaning of life and throw yourself into something like that.
1: Wait a second. I thought that's exactly the reason you go to a Zen temple to seek the meaning of life when you're 22. Is
0: it? But at that age, because another thing is that I think only one of them had taken Jukai. So these were people who weren't even that familiar with Zen.
1: Well, okay. Well, um, I forget the background of the people in the film. And people have different reasons for coming to uh, a place like Antaiji. And a lot of the Japanese who came there, too, were, uh, how to say, broken souls who were trying to find healing. And they often do find healing there. Uh, That's what a, a Zen temple is all about. But the surprising thing is they get very few Japanese Zen priests there from the main monasteries. Because it's a very different thing.
0: They don't want to live in such an isolated area. Now, to be fair, they have
1: electricity, they have Wi-Fi. That's not the reason. They get no credit for graduation from it. Oh, okay. These days, the majority, overwhelmingly, of young Zen priests in Japan are young boys who are training to take over their family temple from their father, who is the priest there now. So they're they're going to take over the family business. They're going to take over the the well the family institution. I don't want to say business.
0: Yeah, it's okay.
1: It's a it's it supports the local community. Temples are beautiful places. I don't want to say they they don't make a lot of money in these places usually. Believe me, nobody goes right. into running a temple. You know how much it costs to run a temple with the gardens and the roofs, and you always need a new bell and you're out of incense. It takes a lot of money. Yeah, and in, most of these yeah. temples are not. Big profit making institutions, but they do belong to the family and they need to be passed down from generation to generation. So these young boys, usually some girls, are sent at about the age of 20. First, they go to maybe a Buddhist college, right? And they graduate from the Buddhist college just as college students. And then their hair hair is shaven. They go to the monastery for, let's say, two years to learn the ceremonies that they need and to pass and get the credentials to inherit the temple. Usually they were an apprentice to their father, so they grew up there and they learned how to ring the bells, and they learned how to cater to the parishioners and how to do a funeral. They learned all this. That's their main interest. So you have a place like Antiji that says, oh, we're Zen priests, our practice should be Zen and za Zen, and they can't get almost anyone to go there except a the few hardcore types, very few, because they get no credit, no graduation credit.
0: Right. And you can see in the documentary that it's all about Zen and work, and it's not about rituals and ceremonies.
1: Right. And it's not recognized as a real training monastery by the Sotoshu, because they're not teaching anything except Zazen. They won't teach ceremonies. They don't preach about uh, different old texts. They just sit and sit and sit, and so it's not considered orthodox training by the Japanese Soto school, which I think is, frankly, uh, a little ridiculous. But <laughs> that's the way it is. It's not my, not my field to comment. I guess. I, okay. And I just did discussed- comment. I just did comment. So. Yes, <laughs> we we, ha-
0: we have discussed a number of times about the fact that the Zen that's practiced in the temples is not the Zen of Dogen, right?
1: Well, you know, I wouldn't necessarily say that because Dogen was about also catering to parishioners. He did more ceremonies than people think. Yes, he emphasized Zazen, but he also uh, had catered to a community of of parishioners. Um, It was after Dogen that... Uh, Soto Zen became more and more about having parish churches, you know, with parishioners and and really catering to them. So um, I, I, it's kind of a, I don't think I think anti is much more about zazen, zazen, zazen than even Dogen. Dogen did not really? sit okay. 15, No, Dogen did not sit just zazen and fifteen hours a day like they do there. They're hardcore. Okay. They're hardcore. They're extremists. They're hardcore.
0: <laughs> yeah. 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 It's a good extreme, but they're extremists. Yeah, but they're only doing four hours of Zazen a
1: day. But I guess... Who? Um, the, the people on Taiji, they're doing oh, four no, hours of no, Zazen no, no, no. a day. They do four hours a, a day when, on their regular working days because they go out and they work in the fields. But they do session. Session is concentrated sitting, where I believe they do a week, 15 hours of Zazen a day and no work. They only break for okay. meals and to use the facilities and to sleep. They said okay. fifty minutes, walk for ten minutes, sit fifty minutes again, and they continue that from the earlier in the morning before the sun comes up until uh late at night.
0: Yeah, they didn't show that in the documentary. Uh, oh, yeah. They did say four hours a day, and it looked like it was a pretty relaxed situation, you know. a, a couple hours in the morning, a couple hours in the afternoon, do some work, sit around, look at your computer, because they weren't they weren't totally isolated from the world. Um they all had Laptops or iPads, and yeah, they were communicating with family, etc.
1: That's not during their monthly retreat. At least once or twice, maybe it's tw- I have to look at twice a month. They do real retreat time, and okay. that was the in between. And by the way, I'm not criticizing it because, listen, as I often say, zazen is not about long and short. Sometimes we sit for five minutes. Sometimes we sit for five hours. Both good, both good, and there is a time to do each. Sometimes you sit for just once a day, and sometimes you should sit for day after day after day, morning till night, like when I was in, a hermit in that cabin. There wasn't a lot else to do, so I sat a lot of zazen, that's for sure. Yeah, yeah really. Other
0: than, other than go picking mushrooms. And, yeah. I didn't do mushrooms. Stop those rumors.
1: Nothing. There's wild mushrooms in forests. You must I actually do. had a book about poison mushrooms because I couldn't tell a poison one from another. very good one. idea. I, I'll, I'll confess something. I brought my mushrooms from the store. I didn't. I didn't uh, get my one. Okay. No, I'm not. I'm not. Oh, okay. I wasn't going to go in the woods and pick my own mushrooms. I don't trust. And the ambulance was far away. So,
0: okay. One other thing about this documentary about Antaiji is they have to make a commitment to stay there for three years. Yeah. Again, at that age, committing to three years in a Zen temple—that's pretty extreme.
1: And they get very few people to do it. Muho, when he put that rule in, did not want tourists. He wanted people really to commit. Uh, Muho, yeah. I love him dearly. He's a—he's a good friend. And uh, he he's very serious, and he said, you know, it's not about quantity. You don't need to get fifty people there who are half into it. You need a handful of people who are wholehearted. And I, I appreciate his philosophy on that.
0: But out of the seven or so, what two of them ended up leaving after a year? Yeah,
1: well, that's in the happened, documentary. That's happened all through the history of Zen. If you, I'm going to give you an example today. I went. I got a new invitation to teach Zen to young, I'm talking young, they're about 19, 20 years old, trainees for what is known as bike race. It's a kind of, okay, it's a kind of motorsport in Japan, which involves a little gambling. I have a little question about how I got involved in this, but they they race motorcycles on a track, all right? Okay. So I got the invitation to teach Zazen, and I'm Jizo. I believe that even though they're engaged in, in gambling, I go there to spread a good thing to teach Zazen. So I'm teaching the young motorcycle riders how to sit. Now, they are in real boot camp. You should have seen these guys. Their heads are in buzz cuts. They came in bowing. They would not look me in the eye. They just, everything, I said, are you you doing okay? Hi! Hi! Yes! Hi! Yeah, like this, (laughs) you know, and, and getting down and bowing and walking in the room as if you know, they were in the Japanese military. It was incredible. This is my first day to teach these kids. Now, they have them leave all the time. Why? It's the lifestyle, man. They're in that training. I understand they're in that training for almost two years before they're even allowed on the track. It's the old sumo style, you know. Japanese believe, you know, you train and train and train, and then you get out there and, and uh, become a sumo wrestler and the, in, in front of the crowds they put them through hell. So they're in the hell phase. And yeah, a lot of them can't take it and they get out. But it's the same in the Zen world. Japanese believe in putting someone through tough times, like marine boot camp. And then if they survive that, they come out better on the other end. So have you
0: spent any long period of time, other than your hermitage in the woods, have you spent any long period of time in a Zen temple?
1: It depends what you mean, and this is important, and I'm glad you mentioned this, because I'm going to say some things critical of monastery life, but that's coming from my lineage that did not believe in monastery life. We, in Nishijima Roshi, my teacher, believe that working people with families should become more like Zen, uh, how to say, out-in-the-world ministers than monastics. So my experience is to go to a monastery for two weeks, three weeks, for one of these intensive retreats, but I was never a long-term resident. Uh, my kids and my wife uh, wouldn't have approved. And uh, I, uh, frankly, always had the spirit in me of staying out in the world. Sometimes, do I regret that? In a sense, I l- miss certain things in my training. But on the other hand, I believe I got other things, which is really to bring this training out into the world, which was Nishijima's philosophy. Uh, where uh, if I like to say that if everyone in the Zen world was like our lineage out in the world, Zen would die. Because yeah. the, monas- the monasteries perform great functions, they're the, the, the libraries of wisdom that keep it going from generation to generation, are traditions. But If everyone was like the monasteries, Zen would die, because it's kind of, uh, how to say, dusty and a little moldy in there. And isolated. And isolated. isolated, yeah. I think it's a good thing we're doing, bringing these traditions out into the world. One of the people at Antaiji in
0: the documentary was a Japanese man who had left his family behind. And I believe near the end of the documentary, he was deciding whether he was going to go to a different temple and be ordinated, which would have meant, I believe, two years again or three years in a temple to, to us. And what you just said about your family wouldn't let you do that. It seems to be a bit surprising that someone can do that. Yes, we know the, the, the Buddha did that. He left his family and all sorts of um, practitioners have left their family. But in, in the modern times, it seems that um, leaving your wife and children behind, or if you're a woman, leaving your husband and children behind is a pretty radical thing to do.
1: You know, it depends. Now, on the one hand, I did not like the answer that Echo, the abbot of Antai gave to that fellow, which was something like, You need to be more sincere and it will solve itself. So he decided to mm-hmm. stay there and just see his kids sometimes. And he said, The kids support me being here. But, you know, that's the traditional way of Buddhism for 2,500 years, where, and it really caused tremendous social problems back in India. You had husbands leaving wives and kids in the lurch to become monks, which I don't think is right with my modern sensibility. And even Dogen, who's my great hero, you know, told a, a, a young priest one time uh, who said, uh, Listen, if I come here my uh, mother's gonna starve. And Dogen's response, unbelievable to me, but maybe it made sense in the thirteenth century was well, if she starves, at least she'll get good karma because her son has become a priest. It's worth it. I said, wow, you know, how can, where's his human heart? Now, back in those days with people dying right and left and, you know, life being hard and, and people getting called uh, away from home for all kinds of reasons and to the military or, or just tremendous poverty, who knows when, maybe it was a better answer. But today, okay, if that priest or trainee, whatever he is, I, I think he became a priest at Antaiji, if he wants to leave his family and dedicate himself to Buddhism, that's his choice, but to him and his family, all right? But I say, this is Nishijima's philosophy again, find your monastery with your kid and your wife and bring these teachings to life where people live. You can do that, too. So I think that um, that's not the only way. No, he should have stayed with his kids. That's what I did. I stayed with my kids.
0: Uh, Unless the wife and kids were happy that he went away. You never know. (laughs) Maybe my
1: kids are sometimes. I I think so. So. Now, I want to say a couple of things about monasteries. The good that people don't think about, and maybe some negative points that people don't think about. First off, the good. They are repositories of tradition that have kept this flame burning for literally thousands of years. And there would be no Buddhism without monasteries. Monasteries are like our universities. That's very important. Number two, there is something very freeing about the monastic life. There's a certain kind of training that you can do there that you cannot do out in the world so easily. The repetition, the self-denial, the being part of the group and having to go along with the group as opposed to your personal desires, the need to sit and do things that you personally would not want to choose to do in that moment, the denial of the senses to not being exposed to media and having to do podcasts or listen to podcasts or do all these things, and to be in a quiet, natural spot. Day after day after day for years is a powerful practice that is hard to get other places. On the other hand, I like to say... There's always another hand. On the other sound of one hand clapping hand, Buddha said that joining the ordained world and leaving the toils of complex society was the easier path. He didn't say you couldn't do this practice out in the world. He said to ha- remove yourself from society is the simpler way. If you look at his early words, which means that in some sense, the people who need to go to monasteries are a little weak, in a sense. You think that, oh, to be a monastic and to put yourself into that, it's like the guy who joins the army. So there's a guy joins the army, joins the army because He's not strong enough to make it on his own. He needs somebody to tell him what to do. There is that in the monastery. There is that sense that if you need to cut yourself off from the world, if you need to have someone tell you what to do all day, if you need to give up your own choices, if you cannot deal with the complexities of all the things that life and business and family responsibility you are, in a sense, running from them.
0: Yeah, it can be seen as a way of escaping from the world.
1: And sometimes when people come out of the monastery and try to come into the world, they don't know how to deal with it. You know, you think they're enlightened now, they've had all that training. But it's hard to come back into the complexity of life. So that's the bad point of the monastery. And if you think that the monastery should only keep the training in the monastery, that's bad, too. For thousands of years, lay people were expected to just make donations to the monastery. Bring food, give us cash. <laughs> That's what it was basically was, because lay people were outside and the monasteries were where it's really happening. And in modern times we've gone the other way. We've said, no, baby, you can practice out in the world. Lay people can do this practice. That is revolutionary, unique in the history of Buddhism. It is not just for monastics anymore. It's for folks, you know, out here in the burbs. It is out here in the in the city. All right, Roshi, where do we go from here? Well, not to a monastery and uh, not to my hermitage right away. I got to go take my kids to a uh, karate lesson.
0: If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe in iTunes or in your favorite podcast app. Please give us a rating. Tell your friends. You can check out past episodes at our website, zen-of-everything.com. Thanks for listening.